I can still remember the details of a conversation that I had several decades ago. Uh, it took place my freshman year of college, fall semester my freshman year. I was living in a dormitory, third floor of a dormitory. One wing was guys, the other wing was young ladies. And our third floor guys, we invited third floor girls over for a Friday night party. And uh, I'm guessing most of the guys were doing what I was doing, kind of scoping out the girls and seeing if there was anyone I might have an interest in. And uh, sure enough, by the end of the night, there was one person in particular that I had begun a, a conversation with, and it's small talk, but I invited her to uh, go with me to her side of the dorm. I, I'd walk her back to her side, and she said yes, and I walked her over, and as I was about to say goodnight to her, the thought occurred to me, you know, you ought to take this conversation to the next level. Uh, but the minute I thought that, the, the next thought that crept into my mind is, yeah, but what if she's not as interested in talking to you as you are in talking to her? You, you've been there? You know, or what's worse, what if she thinks I'm hitting on her? And then it dawned on me, well, I, I am hitting on her. <laughs> it's like the whole purpose here, you know? So maybe we'll talk and she'll want to go out with me and maybe we'll have many more conversations. Well, as God would have it, that's exactly what happened. We, we've had many more conversations since because we're married to each other now. And uh, so Sue and I continue to talk, talk to each other all the time. But I'll never forget the very first conversation when I had to say, am I willing to take this risk? Am, am I willing to go from small talk to something a little deeper? Finding out more about her life, telling her more about me, and and so on. Well, welcome to week one of a four-part series that we're call, calling from small talk to God talk. Okay, th this is a series about engaging others in spiritual conversation. I mean, how do we go from talking about the weather, talking about our job, talking about how much we hate algebra class, talking about the Cubs being in the World Series? You knew I would say that, <laughs> all right? Small talk, though. That's small talk compared to the biggest topic of conversation out there, God's stuff. Now, now, I'm making a big assumption as we launch this series. I'm assuming that many of us want to talk about God's stuff with other people uh, because we've entered into a relationship with Jesus and it has dramatically changed our lives and we'd love to talk about that with other people. And not only that, we know that Jesus is the only one who can restore people's broken relationship with God. He's the only one who can free them from the guilt of their sin, who can give their lives ultimate meaning. He's the only one who can secure an eternal home for them in a new heaven and earth. So what's not to like in talking about Jesus? No wonder that this is referred to as the gospel, which means good news, good news in the Bible. Unfortunately, uh, many of us have convinced ourselves that the people we know would not be interested in our good news. Uh, may maybe we've actually tried to move a conversation that direction in the past and we have gotten shut down. Uh, or, or maybe we've watched some earnest Christ follower sort of foist the good news on somebody, somebody else in an overbearing way. And we say, oh, we don't want to do that. Well, I've got some good news about the good news for you today. A survey was done among unchurched people this last year. So people who don't go to church except an occasional wedding or funeral. So hundreds of people were surveyed, and they were given statements to agree or disagree with. This is one of the statements. If a friend of mine really values their faith... I don't mind them talking about it. So what percentage of people do you think, unchurched people, agreed with that statement? They don't mind their friends talking about their faith. 
You think it was like 10%, maybe 30%? 79% of the people said, we don't mind talking about faith matters if our friend is interested in doing so. Evidently, people are much more open to God talk than we imagine. So, so what we need is we need some helpful instruction to move conversations from small talk to God talk. Uh, th- this past summer, I read an excellent book in this regard, a book that I found extremely helpful called The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversations. Okay, The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversations. In fact, I've got the entire pastoral staff at Christ Community Church reading this book with me right now, and it's available. We're selling it at resource during the course of this series. And as I read the book, Nine Arts, it, you know, it dawned on me that these nine arts can really be grouped into three major categories. So if I'm going to teach this. You know, first, I was thinking I'd, I'd do nine weeks, one week per art. And I'm thinking, well, if I could put them in three categories, three things to remember are a lot easier than nine things to remember, right? And, and then I, I attached a word, an action word, a verb to each of these three categories to make it even more memorable. So during the course of this four-week series, I'm going to teach and reiterate these three words. So let me give you the words one at a time. I'll give you one of the words and ask you to repeat it loudly at all four campuses. Okay, if you're watching online, you've got to yell at your computer. Here we go. First word is notice. Notice. Engage. Engage. Tell. Good. Notice, engage, tell. Now, here's what we're going to do. Each week, we're going to look at another Bible story where somebody moves a conversation from small talk to God talk. And you're going to see every week how they go through the same three steps. Notice, engage, tell. Now, I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 19. That's our story for today, Luke 19. And while you're turning, I've got to acknowledge something to you. Fess up. Okay, when I put notice, engage, tell together, I thought to myself, it's an acronym. But we just finished this Bible Savvy series in which we beat the drum every week for an acronym called COMA. This is how to study the Bible, C-O-M-A. And I thought, you know, pastors shouldn't do more than one acronym a year. And, and, and then this dropped into place and I couldn't ignore it. You know, notice, engage, tell. Not only that, look at what the first letter of each of those three words spells. What does it spell? Call it out. Net. You say, so what? Well, so what? In Matthew 4.19, Jesus says, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. So Jesus wants to make people fishers out of his followers. He, he, he wants to make us into those who will gather other, others into a relationship with himself. Go fishing for people. Now, in the first century, On the Sea of Galilee, you didn't fish with a rod and reel. You fished with a net. Okay, that's what you used. So if you're going to be a fisher of people, got to use a net. Notice, engage, tell. Now, if you haven't taken the outline from your program yet, I encourage you to take it out. And then turn with me, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 19. Let me read the first A few verses of this. By the way, when I get done reading the first few verses, we're not going to do this every time we read Scripture, but occasionally to remind us that this is a book that we should be very grateful, that God has condescended to make himself known to us in a book. We we, we get to hold it in our hand. 
So when I get done with these verses, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you say, thanks be to God. But say it like you mean it. So people around you who maybe aren't familiar with the Bible will say, maybe I ought to start reading this book for myself, okay? Verse 1 of chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he was short. He could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. We're going to stop right there in the middle of the verse. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, thank you, God, for your word. Now, this is the backdrop for the story. Jesus is in a city called Jericho. It's a hustling, bustling town. It's located on the west bank of the Jordan River. And when he comes to town, word gets out, Jesus is on the streets, and a crowd gathers. There's a guy named Zacchaeus who really wants to meet Jesus, really wants to find out more about Jesus. Now, let me introduce you to Zacchaeus. Luke tells us three things about Zacchaeus I want you to notice. N stands for notice. First thing I want you to notice, middle of verse 2, he was a chief tax collector. Okay, here's here's what's going on. In, In the day... Uh, Rome, the overlords, they they were in charge of tax booths in three major cities. Jericho was one of them. Because Jericho was a spot where people from the east traveling across the Jordan River into Judea on their way to Jerusalem, they'd have to pass through Jericho. So they, they set up customs booths there and charged a fee. Anybody transporting uh, goods across the Jordan River and into Judea. Evidently, there were a lot of tax booths, a lot of employees, and the boss of all of them was a guy named Zacchaeus. But here's the thing about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a Jewish name. So you got a Jewish guy working for the hated Roman government, the tyrants. This this does not make Zacchaeus a very popular fellow. You, You can count on the fact he didn't have many friends, except maybe a few fellow tax collectors. Here's the second thing I want you to notice about Zacchaeus from Luke's account. Verse 2, last word, he was wealthy. How do you think Zacchaeus got his wealth? He squeezed it out of other people. Okay, he took a cut of whatever his employees collected, which encouraged them to squeeze more money out of the travelers passing through and paying customs fees. It was all very dishonest. Did this bother Zacchaeus' conscience? Uh, Luke doesn't say, but from the story, as we move ahead, you're going to get the idea that, yeah, yeah, he was probably plagued by a troubled conscience. Last thing I want you to note that Luke says about Zacchaeus, verse 3, he was short. Yeah, I've always pictured Zacchaeus as kind of like a Danny DeVito. And when when I was a little boy growing up in Sunday school, they taught us a song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. I'm not going to sing anymore, okay? A wee little man. I just imagine Zacchaeus had heard all the short people jokes he, he ever wanted to hear, okay? Did you, did you hear Zacchaeus never uses his grill? Because the stakes are too high. Yeah, somebody tried to pickpocket him. How could anybody stoop that low? I, I wanted to borrow some money from Zacchaeus. I asked him for five bucks, and he says, sorry, I'm a bit short. Okay, Zacchaeus walks into a mini bar and says, come on, a mini bar? I was working the crowd. Okay, I'll keep my day job of pastoring. He'd heard all these short jokes. Every time he passed a group of people 
who were gathered in a cluster and whispering, he was pretty certain they were talking about him, his shortness. Well, Luke tells us that Zacchaeus wanted to find out more about Jesus, and because he couldn't see over the crowd, he climbed a sycamore fig tree. Now, I hope you're listening out there in DeKalb Sycamore, okay? Because you're in the Bible, a sycamore tree. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if a sycamore fig tree differs from a sycamore tree, but a sycamore fig tree has a, a relatively short trunk. It's got wide horizontal limbs that stretch out, make it really easy to climb. And so he climbs this tree. Uh, on, on one occasion, when I was in Jericho, one of the locals tried to convince me that a tree in the center of town, a sycamore tree, was the very tree that Zacchaeus had climbed. And my tour guide, he leaned over and he whispered, he said, these trees don't grow beyond like 400, 500 years. It's not 2,000 years old. So you will never see the exact tree that he climbed. But he climbed a sycamore fig tree to get a better view of Jesus. Now, why did he want to see Jesus so badly? Luke doesn't say. Maybe it's something that I've already touched on. Maybe it was his loneliness. Maybe it was his guilt-stricken conscience. Maybe it was conscience. Maybe it was his poor self-image. But whatever the reason, Zacchaeus was ripe for a relationship with God. So Jesus comes down the road. He is swamped by a crowd, and yet he comes to a dead halt under a sycamore fig tree to look up at a short guy hanging onto one of the limbs and says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Jesus had a knack for noticing. Jesus could pick a single individual out of a crowd. And stands for notice. Notice people. You notice if they're happy or they looking sad today? Are they busy or are they, are they bored? Are they surrounded by friends or are they sitting by themselves in the school cafeteria? Is that a tattoo? Well, what does their tattoo say? How are they handling their kids? Why is there an edginess to their voice? You notice. Now, you may be thinking, well, this is a series on conversation, on talking moving from small talk to God talk. So what does noticing have to do with talking? Okay, let me give you an example of the difference it makes. Uh, I take my shirts to the same dry cleaners uh, once or, 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 or once or twice a month. And so I've gotten to know the guy fairly well. We're on a first name basis. And uh, as I come into a shop, we engage in small talk. And it usually depends on how many people are waiting in line behind me, whether we talk for a minute or three minutes, four minutes. Uh, just recently, I came into his shop. This is like two weeks ago. And I noticed something about my dry cleaner friend. I noticed that he looked tired. He looked bedraggled. And so I said right out loud to him, I said, dude, you look exhausted today. And he said, yeah, I'm tired. He works a couple of different shop, shops, and he proceeded to tell me his story in a couple of minutes, but he kept repeating that line. I bet I heard it five times. I'm so tired. I need a rest. He kept saying, I need a rest. So I get out to my car afterwards, and a Bible verse comes to mind. Isn't it crazy how the best, the best thoughts come to you after the conversation is over? So I'm sitting in my car, and Matthew 11:28 comes to my mind, where Jesus says, come to me if you're weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. I'll give you rest. And I thought to myself, that would have been a good verse to share with a dry cleaner. 
And I thought, well, maybe my opportunity hasn't been missed. So I, I tracked down a plaque with that Bible verse on it. And, and this last week when I took my shirts in, I said, bro, I got a gift for you. I'm sure he's never had somebody you know, give their dry cleaner a gift. So he looked at it somewhat suspiciously and he opened it up and there's this verse and I let him read it. And then I took just like a minute to explain it. And I said, you know, the rest that Jesus can give is a rest on the inside. Nothing can touch. Now, I have no idea where that conversation is going to go next. But I have a sense that the ball got moved down the field a little bit. You know, we, we moved a little bit from small talk to God talk, and it got launched by the fact that I noticed he looked tired. He needed a rest. You get it? Good. Now, the, the guys who wrote the book, The Nine Arts of Spiritual Conversations, they give us several reasons in their book uh, why, why we fail to notice people around us. But the number one reason they give is busyness. You know, we just got an agenda. We're marching through our day. We got places to go. We got things to do. Get out of our way. Right. So I just told you a story of me noticing. Let me tell you a story of me not noticing. Uh, just a, a week or so ago, I'm taking my garbage cans to the end of the driveway, and I, I look across the uh, front yard, and my neighbor's got his garage door open. I'm figuring he's getting his garbage together or tinkering on his car. My initial reaction is just to call out, hey, how you doing? But then I thought to myself, I thought, oh, no, that's right. His son just left for Marine boot camp. If I say, how you doing, I'm going to get an earful. He's going to tell me how his son's doing, how, how he's doing with his son leaving home. And I got stuff to do back in my house. And so I tiptoed back up the drive. Kind of didn't want to look because I, I don't want to catch his eye. Some of you are thinking, and you call yourself a pastor. <laughs> you know, that's actually what the Holy Spirit said to me. You call yourself a pastor. So I got to tell you, like a day or two later, I did make up for it. I, uh, I was out grilling on my patio, and he was out having a smoke, and I called over. I said, hey, Mike, how's your son doing? And so we had that conversation. But I got to tell you, busyness is the biggest enemy of noticing. And, and the reason I point this out to you is I want to go back to the historical context. Jesus is hustling through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the last time in his earthly life because this is the occasion when he gets there, he's going to be arrested, he's going to be crucified, and he knows this. This is a man on a mission, friends. This is a guy with a really important agenda, but he comes to a halt under a sycamore fig tree because he spots a short guy up there and says, hold everything, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Don't, don't let busyness keep you from noticing. Now, one of the tips that I picked up in this book, The Nine Arts, is that if you want to enhance your noticing, about the best thing you, you can do is to go through your day silently praying for people you encounter. People you see at the coffee shop or in the grocery store, what, you know, whether you know them or you don't know them. You're, now, this is a silent prayer. This is not an out loud prayer. You keep your mouth shut. You keep your eyes open. You don't stare while you're praying for them. The authors of Nine Arts say this is covert praying. I, li I like their phrase. They, they say this is praying for people behind their backs, okay? And what happens when you begin praying for people? You, you start caring about them. 
you start watching them a little more carefully, you, you start noticing. So if you want to start noticing more, start praying. Okay, second word is the word engage. First word, notice. Second word, engage. Go back to the story. Let's pick it up at verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Uh, Just a side note here. How did Jesus know his name was Zacchaeus? See, there's two possibilities. Either he was exercising his his godness. This is supernatural all-knowingness because he's the son of God. Or he just noticed. So he's walking down the street and he's listening to the crowd. He's tuned in and he's hearing people say, is that that idiot Zacchaeus up in the, up in the sycamore tree? It's, yeah, that's Zacchaeus. And he's hearing Zacchaeus. Let, let me tell you something. When you notice someone's name and you begin to use it, oh my goodness, you're on your way to a conversation. Okay, so verse 6, continuing. So Jesus or Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. So this is where Jesus engages Zacchaeus. Okay, when we are fishing for people, we begin by prayerfully noticing them. You know, before we ever open our mouths in a conversation, we got work to do. We just notice. However, there comes a time, there comes a point when we've got to take the initiative to engage. Jesus is the perfect example of how to do this. I I want you to note with me several aspects of Jesus engaging. So first, engaging begins with a welcoming spirit. Okay, you see that in Jesus. We're, We're to give off a vibe that we're interested in interaction. See, our very demeanor says, hey, let's talk. As opposed to, uh, get out of my way, I don't have time for you, or I'm really not interested in a conversation. So it's amazing what Jesus does. Verse 5, he calls to Zacchaeus, this guy he's meeting for the first time, and says, I must stay at your house today. I must. Now, Now, there was a reason that Jesus was so bold with Zacchaeus. It's because if Jesus had waited for Zacchaeus to take the initiative to engage, it never would have happened. Why not? Well, here's this guy with this absolutely horrible reputation. He couldn't, Zacchaeus couldn't imagine anybody wanting to connect with him. So he's not about to begin a conversation only to be rebuffed. Listen, friends, a lot of people that we encounter every day some we know well, some we just meet in passing. They're not about to be the ones who initiate a warm conversation. They are too timid or insecure or self-centered or gnarly or unsociable or whatever to make the first move. So, so Christ followers should exude a welcoming spirit, a spirit that communicates, you know, I'd like to get to know you. That's one aspect of this engaging. It has to do with the welcoming spirit. Here's another aspect of engaging. It has to do with creating a conversational environment where where engagement can happen. See, it's hard to engage on a personal level in the middle of your workday. It's hard to engage when, when, when you're in American history class at school or you're in your car driving past your neighbors on your way to a doctor's appointment. We've got to be intentional about finding a time and a place in which good conversations can develop. 
See, that's why Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Please understand, it wasn't for a cup of iced tea, like, I'm, you know, I need a drink and then I'll be on my way. No, he says to Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. The word stay in the first century was used to describe unhitching your pack animals for the night. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, Zacchaeus, yeah, I, I went online, I looked you up on Airbnb, and I chose your, your, your house. So I'm, I'm spending the night, dude. What's for breakfast tomorrow? Jesus planned on a conversation. He needed an environment in which to have it. So I, I like to refer to these as fishing ponds. If we're going to fish for people, where do the fish hang out? Where can you go and have a conversation? You know, I've told you before that, that for me, you know, one of the disadvantages of being a pastor is I get stuck with Christ followers all day. And so I got to be very, if I want to talk to people about Jesus who are not yet committed to him, I got to find places to do it at the health club or walking the dog or you know, what's become a favorite for Sue and me. Several times a year, we get out our little red wagon. I've told you about this before. We go up and down our block, 26 different houses, and we stop and we collect canned goods for the local food pantry. Now, people love to participate. They're doing a good deed for the poor. And, and early on, when we first started doing it, we, we, put it on a piece of paper, made copies, and, you know, put it on their door a couple of days ahead. We're coming your way to collect canned goods. Now we've collected all their emails, so we just email them. We're coming in a couple of days. And when we stop at their house to get canned goods, so many conversations develop on the front stoop. Now, how you doing? How's your health? How's your job? How are your kids? People invite us inside to show us remodeling projects or around back to show us the garden or the fire pit they just put in. And oftentimes, people will tell us about a problem in their lives, which is what gives Sue and me the opportunity to say, hey, we're, we're prayers. Can I take like 60 seconds to pray for you right now? I never say, by the way, hey, I'm a pastor. Can I pray for you? I want to keep that hidden from people. So, but this is something you could say, I'm a prayer. Can I pray for you? Nobody, nobody turns you down. And so, so a week ago, two weeks ago, I'm out on my fr front porch reading a book, and uh, one of my neighbors is going by on an early morning jog, and she starts to run by the house, and then she sees me on my porch, and she stops and backs up, and she says, Jim, would you pray about something for me? I said, sure, come on up. And she proceeded to fill me in on a serious doctor's appointment she was headed off to that day. And I called Sue out of the house and we prayed for our neighbor, which never would have happened had I not had the fishing pond opportunity created by collecting canned goods. She knew I was a prayer. So where are your fishing ponds? You know, maybe you're a young mom who takes your toddlers to the park. Maybe that's your fishing pond. Maybe you're, you're a volunteer on the PTA board. It gives you interaction with other people. Maybe it's the school bus ride. You know, you're a middle school, you're a high school student, and you spend 20 minutes each direction every day sitting next to somebody on a school bus. Maybe it's a second Saturday project. Have you learned yet that you could do these with a friend? I've done, done them with neighbors. Said, hey, I'm going to spend two hours serving the poor. You want to help me? We're going to the homeless shelter. We're going to a nursing home. Whatever. 
Where are your fishing ponds? Don't, don't think of fishing ponds strictly as places, though, because they may also be activities, activities that you currently do by yourself, but which you could easily invite somebody else to join you in doing. Watching a ball game together. You know, you got some more opportunities to do that, right? Walking the dog. Hey, I'm going to walk the dog. You, you want to walk your dog with me? Raking the yard. Can I help you rake yours? You can come over and help me rake mine. Make sure they got more leaves than you, though, or it looks like a setup. Studying for a test together. Shopping for a car. I'm looking for a car. You want to give me a hand? Take somebody with you. Create an environment for engaging. And then one final aspect of engaging that we could pick up from Jesus, and I'm going to read between the lines of the Zacchaeus story now. This is something not explicitly mentioned in Luke 19, but we find Jesus doing it again and again and again in the gospel accounts of his life. Jesus, listen, Jesus asked good questions. Jesus was a master of question asking. Now, we don't know exactly what questions he asked Zacchaeus, but I'm certain he did. Because he was constantly asking people about their lives, about their opinions, about their understanding of spiritual matters. That's how Jesus got conversations launched. In, in fact, even when others started the conversation by asking Jesus a question, you, you know what his typical response was? It was a question. Now, one Bible commentator has done a study, and I'll take their word for it. I didn't do the count myself. But this commentator said 180 times in the Gospels, Jesus is asked a spiritual question, and only three times does he respond directly. Most of the other times he responds with a question. That's a good question. I was wondering, and you turn the tables. Jesus was a great conversationalist. Now, the writers of the Nine Arts book, they point out that we're not the greatest conversationalists. Listen to this indictment. This is a little bit of an ouch, but they write this in their book. Some of us talk way too much and listen very little. Often we offer our unsolicited opinions. Our attention spans are short, and we formulate our responses while others are still speaking. We'll often make hasty generalizations and jump to conclusions. Some of us talk over people and talk for people. Most of us are generally not curious. We just don't care to know, okay? We're not curious. We're more inclined to talk about ourselves than ask about others. Let me read that last line again. Most of us are generally not curious. We're more inclined to talk about ourselves than ask about others. I could see myself in that paragraph. I'll have more to say about how to ask good questions over the next several weeks, but let me sum up engage here. Okay, it begins with exuding a welcoming spirit so people know you're approachable. And, and then you create a conversational environment where a conversation can actually take place. And then you ask good questions. That's what it means to engage. You get it? Good. Notice. Engage. Here's the T of net. It's tell. So Jesus goes home with Zacchaeus and after some hanging out together... Zacchaeus stands up to make a public announcement. Now, again, Luke doesn't tell us when this took place. Did it, did it take place in the evening or the next morning or what? You know, I like to imagine that it took place 
just at the end of dinner. They'd had a robust dinner conversation, and then Zacchaeus takes his fork or a spoon, and he starts dinging the side of his wine glass, gets everybody's attention, and then he stands up, and this is what happens. Look, at this is amazing. Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. This man, too, obviously, he's a son of Abraham. For the son of man, speaking of himself, came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus has obviously told Zacchaeus something. Something. While they're hanging out together, something that resulted in this amazing response from the tax collector. Now, again, Luke doesn't give us the details of what Jesus said, but I think we can piece it together from Zacchaeus' reaction. Okay, remember, Zacchaeus was a, a, a money-grubbing tax collector, and now he stands up and he announces he's going to do two things. Okay, first, he's going to give 50% of his wealth to the poor. Now, you need to understand, he'd read the Old Testament that we still have with us where God outlines a principle for uh, how to steward our money. He says that the first tenth, the tithe of our income goes right back to the Lord's work, some of it to be used for the poor. Zacchaeus says, I, I know the standard rate is 10%. For me, it's going to be 50%. And there was another Old Testament law, a law that said if you ever rip off your neighbor's sheep or goat or oxen and you, you butcher it and you barbecue it and eat it or you sell it to somebody else, you got to repay the owner four times the amount of the animal you stole. Zacchaeus knows this rule, and he says, I know it applies to animals. I'm going to apply it to my business dealings. Anybody I've ripped off in the past in my tax collecting, I'm going to repay that same amount, four times the amount. You could kind of hear a woo go through the crowd. What had brought about this dramatic change in Zacchaeus' life? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in the opening line of his response, verse 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this home. What had brought about the change? Zacchaeus had gotten saved. He'd received God's salvation. Now, now please understand something here. So He didn't earn the salvation by promising to be generous. He evidenced that salvation had come to his heart by promising to be generous generous. Big difference. You see the difference? See, being generous won't lead you to salvation. However, if you've truly been saved, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, it should result in generosity. In fact, if it doesn't, if you're not giving to the Lord's work, then there's good reason to say, I need to trace this back because maybe I'm not saved. I haven't experienced the salvation that God offers because when God's spirit comes to live on the inside, he begins making changes. Money grubbers become money givers. And we're still left to wonder, well, you know, how did Zacchaeus learn all this? How did he learn that he had to surrender to Christ? You know, if we want to move conversations from small talk to God talk, at some point we got to tell people some basic information. At some point, we've got to explain what the Bible says about God, what, what the Bible says about how our sin has broken a relationship with God. We've got to explain who Jesus is and wh why it is that he died on the cross. 
We've we got to explain how a person surrenders their life to Christ. How do you do this? See, all, all this information is what the Bible calls the gospel, the good news. And news has to be communicated with words. I know I'm saying something obvious here. But you wouldn't believe how many times I hear from Christ followers, well, I'm just going to let my life do the speaking for me. See, people will hear the gospel in the way that I live, with my good deeds and my kindness and my love. And people love to quote the words of St. Francis Assisi, who said, preach the good, the good news, the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. As if we can communicate it without words? That's ridiculous. S suppose I said to you today, feed the hungry at all times, and when necessary, use food. Of course it's necessary to use food. You can't feed the, the hungry without food. Listen, friend, you can't communicate the good news without words. You got to tell. You got to tell. So what is it that Jesus told Zacchaeus? that led to his salvation, which resulted in him becoming a generous person. Again, Luke doesn't tell us, but I think I could put it together, and I don't believe it's a wild guess on my part. What I'm about to say is based on what I know of Zacchaeus and what I know of what Jesus had just taught in another setting. See, what I know about Zacchaeus and what Jesus knew is that Zacchaeus was into money. Money, you might say, was Zacchaeus' God. And several chapters earlier, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus is addressing a crowd, and he tells them, friends, you can't serve God and money. Okay, you got to choose between your gods, because you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to this one, and you'll despise the other. Make up your mind. Who's your God? Is it the one true living God, or is it money? Just a few chapters earlier. Jesus was constantly exposing people's false gods. A god is, listen, a god is anything in this life that we depend upon for happiness, significance, or security. Which means a, a false god can be just about anything. It doesn't have to be money. You know, your, your false god could be your girlfriend. You know, happiness, significance, security. Your false god can be your job. You know, your, your false god could be uh, running a marathon or having your sports team win a big competition. Your false god could be your grandkids. See, whatever you're depending upon for happiness, significance, security. Now, here's why the Bible says don't go after false gods. It's because false gods will always let you down. Maybe not initially, but eventually they will. They won't deliver the goods. They won't deliver happiness, significance, and security. And I have a feeling this is what Jesus talked to Zacchaeus about. I have a feeling at some point he talked to him about money and said, well, how's it working for you, Zacchaeus? And we know from the rest of the story it wasn't working for him with respect to happiness, significance, and security. Listen, if you want to move conversations from small talk to God talk, here's a tip for you. Find out what the other person's false God is. And it's not too difficult to sleuth out because it's whatever they talk about incessantly, whether they're bragging or complaining. And strange as it may seem, even what people complain about on a regular basis is their false God. It's what their life is wrapped around. 
And at some point in the conversation, this will give you the liberty to say in so many words, so how's that working for you? Is that giving you happiness, significance, security? Because I know the one true living God who can deliver the goods. And he's got a son named Jesus. And you get to tell him your story about what Jesus has done in your life, providing happiness and significance and security. You get to tell them about the God who delivers the goods, about Jesus. About a month and a half ago, I flew down to Houston to interview Nabil Qureshi, this uh, brilliant young uh, ex-Muslim who wrote the best-selling book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, comes from a, a Pakistani-American home, raised as a devout Muslim. So I get down there, and uh, by the way, that, that video, some of you saw it uh, here in one of our auditoriums, some of you just saw it online. That video has been watched by over 36,000 people now. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. And it, the, number, the number just, you know, the number just keeps going up exponentially. So I get down there and I drop off the camera crew and say, okay, while you guys are getting ready, Nabil and I, we're going to go grab a bite of lunch and just get to know each other. So we go to a, you know, a local restaurant and afterwards call Uber and get us a car to come pick us up. And we're, we're driving back to the place where we're going to shoot this interview. And I'm doing small talk with the driver. Now, it's evident to me by the accent in his voice that he's not from the U.S. originally. So I asked him, his name's Sam, I said, Sam, where are you from? He says, Pakistan. Oh, Pakistan. And so I asked him, I said, so are, are you a Muslim by faith? And he said, yeah. I said, tell me, tell me about Islam. And he, he told me there was, there was actually a holy day going on the celebration his family was enjoying and so on and so on. You know, all sorts of cool stuff. And when he got done, I said to him, I said, Sam, I'm a, a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm just curious, what do you think about Jesus? By the way, this is a great question. You, you don't have to be talking to someone of another faith. You don't have to be talking to a Muslim, just anybody you know. Say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm curious, what do you think about Jesus? Now, I want to tell you what Sam said to me. Because it'll break your heart. He said to me, I've lived in this country for 30 years and nobody's ever told me about Jesus. You've lived here for 30 years. He's been an Uber driver. Think of all the people in and out of his car in the Bible belt, for goodness sakes. Nobody's ever told him about Jesus. I said to him, well, Sammy, this is your lucky day. <laughs> and then I turned it over to Nabil. <laughs> this is my Pakistani friend here, you know, who's written a book. And, you know, wow. Notice, engage, and tell. Now, you're going to see it in one story after another over the next several weeks. By the way, uh, we've said that uh, Clayton and I, this fall, uh, we're going to try something different. Every time we begin a series, we're going to try and identify what sermons, what weekends in the series would be a great weekend for you to invite a friend who's just exploring the faith. So in a series like this, it's obviously, uh, you know, geared in, for the most part to those who are Christ followers. This is good news to share. How do you do it? Okay? We don't want to miss any of you who are exploring the faith or friends you have who are exploring Christianity. So I would say the last weekend of this series, I think it's November 12 and 13, mark that on your calendar and plan to bring a friend. Two good reasons. One, Clayton's speaking. He's just a great communicator. And number two, we, we back up 
the message that day with baptisms, which is always a party at Christ Community Church. So people will hear stories of lives that Christ has changed as a prelude to the message that they're going to hear that day. Now, in a moment, we're going to collect our gifts. This is your Zacchaeus moment, right? To show how salvation has changed you into a generous person. And, and as, as we bring our gifts, we're going to sing a song about carrying the good news of Jesus into a lost world. So sing from your heart, and when we're done, our campus pastors will c come and close the service.